Excellent, good. Thanks, everyone. Um, so, David and Goliath. I just wanted to make sure, has anybody ever heard this story before anywhere? No? Okay, so this is all brand new. This is a brand new story to everybody this morning, is it? So you come with no preconceived ideas as to what the story is actually about. Is that right? Okay, great. Well, this is going to be, uh, this is going to be interesting. It's going to make life much easier for me. Um, so this is the second in our series um, on King David, and Mike introduced us last week to David. Uh, many of you will have been here or might have even caught up online. Uh, but very briefly, to set the scene, um, remember, we first come across David when Samuel, well, when actually God has spoken to the prophet Samuel and told Samuel that Saul, who was the anointed king of Israel, had essentially lost his anointing because of his disobedience and unbelief. And Samuel had been commissioned by God to go and anoint the new king of Israel. So he goes to Jesse's household uh, because that's what God told him to do. It's incredibly specific, isn't it? When you think back at what that must have been like, not just go randomly and look for someone, go to the house of this particular person, and there you will find the future king of Israel. And Jesse had all his sons, well, thought he had all his sons, paraded in front of Samuel, and none of them were chosen. God didn't say to Samuel about any of them, that was the one he needed to um, anoint as king of Israel. So, uh, but there was one more son, the youngster, the little one, you know, the irritating one in the family, the one who's always playing the practical jokes. He's just out looking after the sheep. He'll be all hot and sweaty and he'll have, you know, be dripping in sun cream and all the rest of it when you see him. He comes in and that's the one that God said to Samuel, he is the one. And there are a few, just three things to bear in mind as we start looking at this story of David and Goliath. First is this, there's an absolutely incredibly important phrase, that in, uh, verse that's um, that is in the previous chapter, and, and that's the one that you will know well. It says, God doesn't look at the external appearance, but God looks at the heart. So just remember that for a second. And when Samuel anoints David, it says uh, in verse 13, he took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence, in the presence of his brothers. Not the first time that happened in the Old Testament. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So from that moment onwards, God's Holy Spirit fell upon this young guy, the youngest brother who was the, the shepherd of the family, perhaps, in power and rested on him for the whole of his life. So what do you think might have then happened at that point? I would have thought... David would then get off, stand up, and assume his kingly responsibilities. He'd been anointed as king. But what happened? He went back to the fields to serve his father and his family in looking after the sheep. So there was a timing issue. And from that point, David sort of disappears, and as we'll come to see in a, a, a few minutes' time, the only other time we hear of him before the, the David and Goliath story that all of you have never heard before is that he was also an extremely uh, gifted musician. 
and was in and out of Saul's service as a kind of paid musician, really, to soothe Saul's um, uh, you know, difficulties when he needed something to help him. So that was David, anointed, but back in the fields. And so we come to David and Goliath. And this is a story I'm going to say, I'm going to deal with in four parts. It's like a BBC miniseries, okay? So there's going to be four, a four-part miniseries, and it will not take four hours, okay, or, or however long a, an episode takes. But we're going to look at this story in four hours. I'm not going to read the whole thing to begin with, because if I did, you'd need another three-minute break before you'd be being ready to come back to listen to anything that um, we had to say and, and share, because it's long. So I'm going to break it into four sections and read those sections as we go through. But I just want you to look at this image, first of all, um, which I found on the internet, which I thought was quite a powerful image, actually, that encapsulates this story of David and Goliath. So, okay, Act 1. And I'm calling Act 1, Goliath is in charge. Okay, so let's just read through these, uh, these verses. So we're looking 1 to 11, and I'm also going to add verse 16 to this as well. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Succor in Judah, they pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Succoth and Azekiah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley in between them. And a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like that of a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and service. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And then jumping to verse 16, for 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening, excuse me, <clears throat> and he took his stand. Excuse me, sir. <clears throat> So by any standards, Goliath was impressive. He's what sports commentators today would call a unit. I don't know whether you've heard that phrase, if you, you ever watch sport. This, this big guy is a unit, and another kind of in phrase at the moment is with very long levers. So it's a unit with long levers, and if you're listening to this, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I think, what on earth is he going up? But what, he, what it means is, are descriptions to describe someone who is massively impressive, has an incredible physique, 
incredibly sporting. His chainmail very helpfully says it was nine feet tall. We all roughly know what nine foot tall might look like. I have no idea whether you have any idea how, how heavy thousands, five thousands of shekels. I don't know how your shekel knowledge is at the moment. But essentially, it's 57 kilograms. That's just his chainmail. So there will be some people in here who weigh 57 kilograms. Imagine that having on the front, that on your front, and the, I think the, uh, the iron tip, just not necessarily the wooden beam for the weaver's rod, is something like uh, eight, seven or eight kilograms, just the tip of his, uh, of his javelin. So he was incredibly strong, incredibly big, incredibly impressive, and he was confident, confrontational, and he was completely in charge of the situation that we find ourselves looking at today. And it's into this that David is announced essentially to the world stage. Israel was dismayed and terrified, it said. God's chosen people who had experienced, if you read just two chapters earlier, victory over the Philistines, and one of their roles as they came out into the Promised Land was to drive out from the Promised Land all those previous inhabitants because that was the land that God had promised to Israel. Philistines were a, a people group that were there to be driven out as far as the promise of God was to Israel. But they were still there. And interestingly, I, I don't know whether you noticed in verse 1, they were in Judah as well. The Philistines were camped in Judah, the place and the area that became the epicenter of the, the description of the glory of Israel and God's chosen people. Philistines were right in the middle of where God promised for his people, challenging them, threatening them. But Israel had had some success against the Philistines in the past. But for whatever reason, when we reach now, they are nothing more than gibbering wrecks, pitiful, feeling powerless. Not only that, this had gone on for 40 days, and 40 nights, twice a day, morning and evening, Goliath was coming out for 40 days. I just wonder what Israel were waiting for. Do you think they were thinking, have we, there must be someone in our army who's big enough and strong enough. Perhaps they went looking for him time and time again. Do you know when you've lost something that's important and you're pretty confident that it, is where you, it should be where you left it last. You have a picture in your mind, and you know where it is, but it isn't there. So you go and look somewhere else, but you go back to the same place, think, no, it is there. No, it isn't there. I've looked. And you go back. It's definitely going to be there. It isn't there. And there might be some other papers around it, so you get them out, so you get them all out, and you, it's not there. You put them back. And right, you go look somewhere else. You can't find it. Of course, in my case, just have to ask Maria, and she'll tell me exactly where I left it last time, um, or I haven't put it in the right place. But you know what I'm saying? You keep going back. Isn't that, didn't someone say that was definition of stupidity, doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different outcome? It's almost felt like Israel were doing the same thing. What do we do? What do we say? What do we do? Day after day, looking. Is there someone, were they perhaps hoping someone might grow some muscles in 40 days? How long would this have gone on for? No idea. But you can see that there was this challenge to God's people 
That wasn't just on day one, they might have thought, whoa, hang on a minute, he's big, we're going to have to have a plan. But by 40 days, they were powerless and had no plan. And the challenges we'll come to later in terms of response is that there are many situations in our lives that can start looking sometimes quite small or quite big, but if we don't confront them and deal with them, they just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and more disabling in terms of what God wants to do for us. We're going to have a time of response later, and I really believe that this is going to be a significant day for many of us where we get a different perspective on some of the things that we're facing so that we're more able to be free in what God has for us going forward. They kept looking. I have no idea um, what they thought they were looking for. Also, um, I used the opportunity this Friday at our our home group, because Mike's uh, preach wasn't recorded, to talk about this Sunday. (laughs) See? Not daft, you know. So we had a real good discussion about this passage. So I was, I was mining everybody else's ideas on, on Wednesday as well, just to, uh, uh, in prep for this. And we were talking about why was it that they got into a one-to-one conflict on behalf of the whole army? And I think Jill sent, you know, here this morning, a, a message around about champion warfare where people did select people to act on their behalf instead of, Hundreds of people is getting killed, you know, just have a little arm-to-arm wrestle and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll submit to you if you win and you submit to us if we win. But if you look previous to this, that didn't seem to be the battle plan that God had given Israel. It was about clearing out and occupying the promised land. So it felt to me that Goliath had just set, not only had he come out and challenged, but he'd also set the rules of engagement. He had established what he wanted to happen. They had decided the plan and the tactics, and Israel just seemed to just stand there, paralyzed. Why didn't they just say, get lost, and all thousands of them run, sort Goliath out, and then go into battle? Why didn't they get on the front foot? Why didn't they just go for it? I have no idea. But that can also be a thing, can't it, for us? That even though we have that power, even though we have the ability, sometimes we can get slightly paralyzed by the picture that is in front of us in terms of the challenges that some of us might face. And the other thing I think we can pick up from this bit of the story in Act 1 is that Israel clearly and probably completely understandably were looking as to how to meet strength with strength. That was the the definition of the threat was standing in front of them in the person of Goliath, and they needed someone of a similar stature and power to even stand a chance if they got into um, an engaged, a a hand-to-hand combat with this person. Goliath's utter dominance of the situation caused fear and terror in Israel and no doubt a sense of total confidence and invincibility in the ranks of the Philistines. They'd just be saying, look, they're not doing anything yet again. We've got this in the bag. So not only did Goliath's confidence and strength cripple Israel, it empowered Israel's enemies at the same time. 
So we're building a, building up a picture which is not incredibly positive, is it, in terms of uh, Israel and the, and the future of, of God's people in that particular battle. And in our lives, how easy is it to become dominated by the challenges we face with an increasing sense of powerlessness? But we just need to remember, you know, it's the devil that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's time to think about Act 2. So Act 1, Goliath in charge. Act 2, the tide starts to turn. So we're going to read verses 12 to 15 and 17 to 27. So we're now introduced to David, bursting onto not only Israel, into Israel's consciousness, but onto the world stage. David was the son of an Ephrathite, Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul into the war. The firstborn, Eliab, the second, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, as we said before, but the three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to their commander, the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are. Please bring me back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So early in the morning, David left the flock with the shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up against their lines, facing each other. And David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. Now, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine, champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage, and by the way, will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And they repeated to him what they'd been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. So David clearly had what I've called a fascination for the confrontation. He wanted to see what was going on. As soon as he got there, he was in, he wanted to, to find out. Uh, he probably, we're not sure whether he had any opportunity, but it may well have been that this was the first time, and it, the rest of the story suggests it is, that he had the opportunity to visit the battle, so he would not have been aware of the previous 40 days of Goliath's uh, taunting of Israel. And I'm assuming David would have found his brothers, 
He would have been talking quite normally to them, might have all been quite all nice, especially if he brought some nice food, etc. Might have been wondering why the commander got 10 loads of cheese and they didn't get any, not sure. But they were suddenly interrupted by Goliath's challenge. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't help but think, what, what would David's response have been to that? What happened in that moment when all of a sudden, David was just probably assuming this is the normal rutting before a, a, a battle happens. They're all coming, all coming out. And then this unit steps forward. What was going through David's mind? And the only way I could think about it, and obviously I have no idea, um, but you know, on, if you're watching a film and then there's something very specific happens, and someone's concentrating on something, and it's like everything else in the background fades. Everything goes blurred. The music dims. And all the person can see is the issue ahead of them. All the noise, all, everything that's going on around disappears, melts into the background. And the only thing that's important is the thing that's visible right in your eye line. And I think it's like that with David. All the shouting, the clamoring, the screaming, and all the rest of it, I think just disappeared into the background of David's imagination and picture, and all he saw was Goliath right there. Nothing else mattered. If you're a Star Wars fan, you remember on that first Star Wars film, first best and ever one, when good old Luke was in these little rickety flying machine aircraft, trying to, you know, kill the Death Star. And there's all this battle and all that, and, and you got the, the little voice that says, look, trust, you know, was it? Feel the force, feel the force. Everything goes quiet. And he locks onto the mission. And that's not real, sorry. I'm, I'm, I know it's not real. Don't, don't worry, I know it's fantasy, okay. And everything disappears into the background. That's the one thing he has to do. And I feel like for David, it probably was something like that. And I think also, when you read verses 25 and 26, when they're all wittering on about what the king's going to, Saul's going to do for the man who sorts Goliath out, David doesn't even hear them. He's not listening anymore to the wittering of unbelief. He's fixing the problem in his eye. And even though there's great wealth being talked about over here, he's oblivious to that first conversation. And then when he comes out, he says, yeah, what, 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 what's, that? What, what, what's, what's all going to do if we sort all this out? And they say, well, we've already told you, you weren't listening. And I just feel that there's something in that for us as well. So much extraneous noise, so many things that can distract, so much negativity that we can be surrounded by. And God's saying to us, I want you to focus on me. I want your laser-like precision to be set on what I have for you no matter what the circumstances either you're in, you're facing, 
or you're surrounded by. So, Act 3, opposition and good intentions. So verses 28 to 39. So David kept saying, right, what we're going to do, who's this? And he kept saying, um, who, critically, at the end of verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That was his question. Not, isn't he massive? Or what we're going to do, he said, is, no, he's defying, he's defying God. This person is defying God. That's all. But nobody would listen. So Eliab pipes up, oldest brother, who would have been there. Remember Eliab, the one Samuel thought was going to be the king of Israel? David's older brother. There in the presence of all the rest of his brothers to see Samuel anoint David as king. He heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. So David, now hang on a minute, what have I done now? Can't I even speak? You can almost hear it, can't you? Brotherly argument. Those of you who got brothers, I, I've never argued like that because I don't have a brother, see, so I mean, I'm completely oblivious to this. But you can just hear it, though, can't you? And so, can't even say, he, he, he then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And when the men answered him, as before, what David said was overheard and reported to, store, to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he has been fight a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescue the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over his tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. He said, I can't go in these because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff from his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. So David was beginning to have that rise of faith, wasn't he? In those situations, perhaps we've all had this from time to time, that when, 
despite what you're facing, despite what you're in, despite the challenges, something in here changes. Something moves spiritually. And God gives you, gives us a gift of faith for that individual and specific circumstance. Could be all sorts of things. David wasn't acting here out of arrogance or his own past experience. He was acting in account and in, um, in conjunction with that sense in his spirit that God had given him, given him a vision for what actually was going to happen and the faith to execute that vision, for that picture. So David was acting out of faith, and his older brother didn't like it. So first bit of opposition that David had directly, rather than you're not listening, is you're pathetic, small, conceited, and you're, you're nosy, get back to that menial, silly little job that dad has sent you to do. Because we're the important ones being too terrified about him. Older brother. I love what it says. So simple. David turned away. David turned away. He didn't argue with him. He didn't get into an arm wrestle with his older brother. He didn't try to say, oh, hang on a minute. Oh, no, it wasn't you who Samuel anointed. Oh, tough. That was me. I win. No, he turned away. Don't. I'm not listening to you. I don't actually care who you are because that's negativity and that's the voice of our opposition. He turned away. But also, when he went to speak to Saul, I know this mixes in with our last bit here. Saul says, so David met opposition from within his own family. He dealt with that by saying, I'm not listening. He met good intentions from Saul, who should have been working out how to do this and see God's plan in the first place as king, who seemed to be quite happy to abdicate that responsibility to someone else. But at least he was trying to help him by saying, right, you've got to somehow match up to him in the way that they've set the rules. So he dressed him in his armor. Can you imagine that? Ridiculous. Utter nonsense. Trying to Saul was trying to make him like himself. And for David, you might have said, whoa, actually, look at me. I'm in the king's kit. This feels good. I rather like being someone else. No, he wants, David was unerringly committed to who God had made him to be. Didn't want to look like Saul. Couldn't be Saul. Couldn't fight in Saul's kit. So despite Saul's good intentions, David said, I can't be you. I need to be me. So he turned away from his brother, but he said to Saul, don't make me be anything other than who God has called me to be. I will go in what I know God has been with me in, delivered me through. This has been my training ground in the past, how I stand before you now. It's not this that's going to beat the Philistine. It's God's power that's going to beat the Philistine. So I don't need to be dressed up. I don't need to be bigged up. I don't need to be in, you know, trying to pretend to be someone I'm not. I just need to be who I am. 
So, Act 4. David triumphs. Now, some gory bits, by the way, come here. If you haven't heard the story before, people get their head cut off. Verse 40. He took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in a pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with the shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come out at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down, cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out the stone, he slung it and it struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took a hold of the Philistine's sword. He drew it from the scabbard, and after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and they ran. And it goes on a bit later, which we'll touch on just in a second, nearly finished. And when we think about the story of David and Goliath, we can get caught up with the vivid description of the action, can't we? Uh, about how it happened and, and who was doing what and how one was dressed and how the other dressed, etc. But the really important thing for us to concentrate on is why was David victorious? Why was it that he, he won? Why was it that he overcome? And like the rest of Israel, David's response was not fear, in fact, to say that he minimized the obvious scale of the threat is an understatement. He just didn't see it like that. God, uh, David knew God's promises. He had an unerring trust in God that he would overcome this challenge. He knew that Israel's mission was to defeat the Philistines and take the land. And it may be, who knows, that he'd already had a sense, having been anointed as the future king of Israel, but he was out doing his shepherding, writing psalms like Mike was saying last week, last, um, last week, that God was putting things into his heart, dripping, dropping things into his heart about what the future held for him, about what his plans were, what he needed to do, how glorious was the kingdom of Israel going to become 
and even, who knows, beyond that in terms of the future lineage of Jesus himself. I don't know. But what we do know is David thought a lot about the positive things, about what God was doing. He dwelt on them. He fed his soul. He fed his spirit with them. In fact, it seems like David didn't focus on the problem in hand at all. He saw Goliath as as an affront to God himself, and therefore David was not fighting really Israel's battles. He was fighting God's battles. He'd worked through his wilderness experiences with the lion and the bear. He drew on his experience of God being with him, felt that power that we we heard about in the previous chapter, the power of God, the spirit, power of the Spirit came on him. And in the wilderness, looking after his sheep, he didn't say, oh, that's one sheep, collateral damage, it's fine, we can do without one, we'll get more. No, he cared about that one sheep. Does that remind you of anyone? Not a hired hand, a forerunner to Jesus himself, who doesn't forget the one, will go after them. David was the same. He'd not only go after them, didn't matter who'd taken the sheep, he would rescue. His anointing from Samuel had helped him to see life and his future through a completely different lens. In a way, the rest is history, isn't it? Could we just have the next slide, please? So, I like this slide. Giant killing. What was it? That, um, sorry, uh, Lord of the Rings quote coming up. Um, yeah, if those of you who don't know Lord of the Rings, switch off for a sec. Those of you who remember Gimli, because um, it would take far too long uh, to describe what was going on. But they're facing an impossible situation, terrible battle. And as a little dwarf, not real, I know, not real, okay. I, I know they don't exist in real life, but there's a great quote where he says something like, certain death, very limited chance of success, what are we waiting for? And it feels like that a bit with, uh, with David, doesn't it? Giant killing against the odds, when on the surface of it appears that there's only going to be one winner and the other has absolutely no chance whatsoever of prevailing and overcoming. And I guess if you stopped a random person in the street and said, what is the moral of the story of David and Goliath? It's that. It's that. Sometimes, even though it's not obvious and it's completely unreasonable to suspect, the little fella might beat the big fella. The junior member of staff challenges the corporation for bullying or harassment and wins. Doesn't happen most of the time. Occasionally it does. Sometimes we hear about it. But I noticed when I was going through this, David never called Goliath a giant. Just called him a Philistine. David never, ever in the account we have, refers to his size. He never refers to his power. He just sees him as an affront to God. He doesn't dwell on the scale of the challenge. He just says, this is not right. Faith rises, and he's the one to do something about it. 
So what do you see in this picture? And it's not a massive twist, really. But the twist for me is, you read the story and you think, David doesn't have a chance. But if you really read the story, it was Goliath that didn't have a chance. Goliath did not stand a chance. So you might think David's the little guy in the black. But I want to suggest to you, David's the big red hand. That is Goliath there. And that is Goliath in our lives, not the other way around. That's what God's saying through the story to us. No matter how big we think the situation is, no matter how challenging, and no matter how we can sometimes feed that, that narrative, that picture, that, that, that image that we have. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that many of us aren't fighting and dealing with incredibly difficult uh, di challenges. I'm not minimizing those at all, so please don't hear me say that. But I felt God saying there are many of us here this morning, and this is an opportunity for us to just reevaluate the picture of some of the challenge that we got. David cut off Goliath's head. And you know, we didn't cover it here. Do you know what he did with it? He picked it up, put it in a bag, and took it to Jerusalem. I think it was Jerusalem. And he put it on a stick. Why do you think he did that? He didn't do it so he could keep going back and looking at the problem he'd sorted out. He did it as a trophy to the grace and the victory of God for Israel. Say, so you want to look at this? That's what can become of the things that stand in our way and stand in opposition to what God's plan is. So that's why we need to perhaps re flip this image round a little bit. So there may be situations, finally, where we feel in our lives we're helpless, not in control, not to influence, not to be able to influence the outcome. Drawn into a negative way of thinking that somehow has got a hold of us to the point that it begins to set the rules as to how we feel and respond. David's example teaches us to turn our eyes to Jesus, but not be afraid to face our challenges but to see through and beyond them into the promises that God has for our lives. You know, it was one stone that sent Goliath to, to his death. But in the New Testament, there was a story of a bigger stone that was rolled away from the tomb to demonstrate that life came to us. Let's pray. I'm just going to invite anybody who wants to come forward as we just reflect on this story. So easily relegated to be a children's story, something we learn in Sunday school. But hidden in here, there is an absolute critical message for us as to how we need to hold on to the promises of God and keep things in the perspective that He has for us.